and they still come. <laughs> so it's been, it's been so long since I've been back. Um, so a long time ago when I was, um, went off to college, went to Western, and uh, I'd always done well academically, like in grade school and elementary school. Uh, but when I got to college, it was kind of next level, I, f I felt. And it was uh, much harder than what I'd been used to. And, and so I had always taken like maths and sciences through high school. And so I just did more of the same. Because um, I thought I, I wanted to be a medical doctor. Uh, I ended up never really applying. Uh, but that's why I just did maths and sciences. So anyway, Went away first year, and um, trying to be a good son, I would call periodically my mother uh, just to kind of touch base with her. And so I remember, I think it was like early to middle October, I'd had my first uh, real assignment test in my college career. I'd had a few little quizzes here and there, but this was like the real first uh, substantial assignment. And it was a midterm in my math class, which was calculus, theoretical calculus. Why I took that, I don't know. That was a mistake. So I remember talking with her on the phone, and we're chatting, and she said, hey, by the way, how did that, how did your test go? What'd you get? I'm like, I'm thinking, oh, I can't believe she remembered about this. Like, oh, man. And so I said, well, mom, it's funny you should ask. Um, and I decided to use the good news, bad news approach to this. So I said, well, Mom, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. She goes, okay, well, what's the good news? And I said, well, the good news is on that math midterm, I scored 25 points higher than the class average. She's like, well, that's, that's good. What's the bad news? The bad news is the class average was 32. Hello, Mom, are you there? Mom, hello, anybody there? So, you know what, sometimes to really appreciate good news, it has to be understood within the context of bad news. And I think uh, that's kind of uh, what we see in Psalm 103. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 103. It's a Psalm of David. And uh, David is just full of praise in this Psalm. That last song, uh, at least parts of it are, are coming from this, this psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I'm using the NIV 84, so bless the Lord uh, is being translated praise the Lord, but it's different. Last, last week, we looked at Psalm 135, and the opening words, praise the Lord, is hallelujah, but that's not this Hebrew expression here. It's barkinashi et adonai, bless my, Lord, this, uh, bless my soul, the Lord. So it's a different, but it still has that meaning of praise. Anyway, uh, let me read it for you. This Psalm 103, and then I'll pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll go from there. So Psalm 103, praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his, his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. 
He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness with their children's children. With those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we pause in your presence, having worshipped you through musical worship and through corporate prayer. Uh, the focus of our worship now turns to uh, the proclamation of your word. And so we ask that you'd give us eyes to see what your Holy Spirit would show us. Give us ears to hear what he would say to us through the preaching of your word. Give us soft, responsive hearts. Speak, Lord, for we, your servants, are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So David is full of praise for God in this psalm, right? Six times in his psalm. He says, he opens verse 1, praise the Lord. Then verse 2, praise the Lord, O my soul. And then verse 20, praise the Lord. Verse 21, praise the Lord, his heavenly host. Uh, praise 20, uh, verse 22, praise the Lord, all his works and everyone in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. So he's full of praise. And verses 2 through 5 is kind of like his, um, kind of like his top five list of, of uh of praise items, right? So verses two through five, he says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So some of you uh, probably, maybe secretly, maybe openly would watch Dave Letterman and Dave Letterman had Dave's top 10 list, right? And so he would list top 10 things for this or that, and he'd go in reverse order, number 10, 9, all the way to number 1. I think these opening verses are Dave, obviously a different Dave, a top 5 list. Top 5 reasons why King David is so full of praise to God. And so in reverse order, number 5, God answers our prayers, right? So verse 5, he says, he uh, who satisfies your desires with good things, such your youth is renewed like the eagles. David will, uh, will say elsewhere in other psalms, the Lord has heard my supplication, the Lord receives my prayer. So that because God answers our prayers, he's, that leads David to be full of praise for God. Number four, God treats us as special. Right, verse four, the back half of verse four, that he crowns you with love and compassion. He echoes this uh, in verse 13, as, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Right, so, so God had made this covenant with David. 
He didn't choose Saul for this covenant, nor did he choose one of David's progeny, Solomon, Rehoboam, and so on and so forth. He chose David for this special covenant, whereby David would be be God's child, uh, and God would be David's father, and then that covenant gets passed on. The covenant with David gets passed on to Solomon and Rehoboam and so on and so forth. So he treats us as special. Number three, God rescues us from life's difficulties. Verse four opens, who redeems your life from the pit. How many times did David experience that in his life, that God redeemed his life from the pit, right? When David, for example, uh, was anointed as king by Samuel, The present king didn't like that, found out that David was his successor. So what did King Saul do? King Saul hunted David to kill him. He chased him down from town to town to town, village to village to village. He was hiding out, David was, in mountains and caves. And and Saul and his forces were pursuing him. This wasn't something that just passed in a month or a few months. If you do the math correctly, and my math skills aren't that great, come to find out. But if you do the math correctly... It's like 10 years of his life that David was on the run for his life. A decade of his life was spent being chased. And just as the forces seemed to get him, he would slip away because God redeemed him. And another town, just as the forces seemed to get him, he'd slip away. For 10 years, that was David's life. God redeemed David's life from the pit. Number two, God does miracles. Verse 3b, he heals all your diseases. He heals all your diseases. So when the Lord had rejected Saul and took away his spirit, evil spirits came and attacked King Saul. And if you read the story that King Saul would ask for David, who hadn't become a military man at that point, and David would come in on his harp. Today we would say his guitar. He'd come and he'd play and he'd sing. And the evil spirits, he'd have instant relief from the evil spirits, Saul would. They would go away. Sometime later, the spirits would come back and attack and afflict Saul mentally, emotionally afflict him. He'd call for David. David would come up, come back, sing, play, instant healing, instant relief. Who heals all your diseases? But the number one reason why God is, David is full of praise for God is because God forgives our sins. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins. So why is that at the top of David's list? The fact that you have all these amazing benefits, 10,000 reasons as we sung, but why is this at the top of the list? Because God is a holy God. He's a holy God. He's transcendent, he's other, and being holy, and in fact, sidebar note, like if you go through your Bible from Genesis to, to Revelation, the most common descriptor, the most common adjective used for God is holy. And probably the most obvious example of that is the third person of the Trinity. He is called the spirit of truth, John 15, John 14. He is called the, uh, depending upon your your translation, the counselor, the comforter, uh, Psalm Psalm 143, verse 10. He's the good spirit. But we all know him as what? The Holy Spirit, time and time and time and time again. Old Testament, New Testament, the Holy Spirit. That's the most common, not just there, but the most common. He's the holy, holy, holy God. Isaiah, Isaiah 6 in Revelation 4. He's holy, holy, holy. That's the most common descriptor of God. And holiness refers to God's 
moral character, that he is perfectly morally pure, he is perfectly sinless in his essence, in his being, in everything that he thinks, says, does. He is sinless. D.A. Carson, one of my mentors in seminary, a New Testament scholar, he puts it this way. He says, God's holiness is so spectacularly glorious that it demands that he be wrathful with those who defy him, slight his majesty, thumb their noses at his words and works, and who insist on their own independence. God's holiness is so spectacularly glorious that it demands that he be wrathful with those who defy him, who slight his majesty, who thumb their noses at his words and at his works, who insist on their own independence. David understood this, right? Look at, like, look at verse 9. He will not always accuse nor will he harbor his anger forever. The, when David says he will not always accuse, that presupposes that there are some times that God accuses. When he says, nor will he harbor his anger forever, that presupposes that he gets angry. Over what? At what? Verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. It's God's sins that cause God to, to accuse us because he is so infinitely holy, spectacularly glorious in his holiness, that he accuses that he gets angry over sins. And David, again, he experienced God's anger and God's accusations in his life firsthand. If you remember when he took that, that census back in, in uh, 2 Samuel, it's also in Chronicles. He, he's at his kind of his military peak, Israel, Judea, he is their king. And he calls in his top general, Joab, and says, hey, go take a census. I want to know how many soldiers I got. And Joab, <laughs> not the most noble fellow, even he knows what's at stake here. And he says, oh, no, that, that would be a mistake, sire. Like, you don't want to do that. But David trumps him because he's the king. He says, go, do it. Right? Because David, in, in, in asking for that census and ordering that census, what he is proclaiming is, well, we are where we're at. This military might be because of, well, I've amassed this mighty army. And I am the general. So with all my ingenuity and innovation and military cleverness, that's why we are who we are. And so he goes out, and the census is very extensive. It takes almost a year to complete. Joab comes back. After 10 months and says, okay, yep, we've numbered it and you've got a little over a million men who are able to uh, go to war for us. And as soon as he says that, David is grief stricken. What have I done? What have I done? And so he goes to the prophet Gad and says, what have I done? Like, can you help get me out of this? And Gad says, well, here's the deal. Uh, you can either um, have famine for three years or... You can be on the run from your enemies for three months, or you can experience plague for three days. And David's like, ah, this is too hard for me. I'll, it's better for me to f let God choose. I don't need, even know. Let God choose. So God chooses plague. So for three days, the plague rips through Israel. 70,000 people die. And David is heartstricken. He's like, Lord, it's my sin. It's not my people's sin. It's my sin. Like, deal with me. And so David has to go. 
build an altar, offer sacrifices to turn God's hand over his sin. Right? But God is so spectacularly glorious, he cannot just nudge, nudge, wink, wink over sin. So that's David. How does God, how does this holy, holy, holy God, thrice holy God, view our sin? Brace yourself for some bad news. Here's the bad news. Our sin is universal. Right? Our sin is universal. David, in another psalm, writes this. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. And Paul quotes this in Romans 3. All have turned aside. They've together become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Sin is universal. It is a human problem. It's a human problem. It's not just a left or right problem. It's not just a conservative, progressive problem. It's a universal problem. Right? Like, no human being has to learn how to sin. If you're a parent, you know. You didn't have to teach your kid how to sin. They just figure it out. They just do it. Right? They don't, because it's in our blood. That's the thing. It's, it's, it's in our blood. David in another psalm says this. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Genesis says this, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Right? Sin is in our blood. That's why we sin. It's not just a choice, but it's our nature. Our nature moves us to sin. Right? We talk about blood types. Type A, type B, A, B, type O, we're kind of type S, like sin is in our blood. That's why we sin, because we're sinners. It's in our blood. Sin blinds us. The prophet Jeremiah says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? See, that's why unbelievers don't get the gospel. Because in their blindness, and we were all once unbelievers, in our blindness, we just think, well, if I just live a moral life, I'll be fine with my creator because I just don't have to be as bad as that person. I'm not Hitler. I'm not Stalin. I'm not Paul Bernardo. I'm not that bad. You're blinded. You're blinded. You don't see how holy God is, how infinitely holy God is. Sin has blinded you. It's in your blood. Sin enslaves us. That's what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We're enslaved to sin in our thoughts, the attitudes of our heart, our minds, our behavior. Like we're enslaved. Sin is enslaving. There's, and we can't break out of it in and of ourselves. We cannot break out. We cannot break the yoke of, of sin and the slavery of sin. And we're not simply enslaved, but sin has actually killed us, spiritually speaking. That's what Paul said. Paul said in Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead. He doesn't say you were asleep. You just needed someone to rouse you. He doesn't say, well, you were crippled. You just need someone to support you. He said you were dead. And dead people can't do anything because they're dead. It's too late. Sin has killed us. So is it any wonder then that God accuses us? Is it any wonder that God is angry 
with us over this universal problem of sin. You know, not too long ago, I was reading this story, and you might have heard of this, uh, this person, Amy Beale. Uh, she was a student at Stanford back in the late 80s. And uh, she was a PhD student. She did her BA in international relations. And then she won this Fulbright Scholarship, which is a very uh, prestigious academic scholarship. Uh, so she won this, uh, this, this scholarship, Fulbright, to do research on women's rights and on um, segregation. This was back in the segregation days in South, Af- South Africa. And so she traveled to Cape Town, South Africa, on her, you know, her fellowship. And as she was driving through, she was set upon by a mob. And this angry mob pulled this young 22-year-old woman out of her car, pummeled her, brutally beat her, and then stabbed her to death. Now you think about that. Like what if that was your child, your daughter, or your son? All these hopes, and she was actually scheduled to uh, return two days after that, and her boyfriend was actually planning to propose to her when she got back. So that's your child. How would you feel beyond the immense grief, beyond the immense sorrow? How would you feel, particularly towards those four people, hooligans, who beat her up and then killed her? How would you feel? Multiply that by infinity. That's how God feels. About sin. As Carson said, God's holiness is so spectacularly glorious that it demands that he be wrathful with those who defy him, who slight his majesty, who thumb their noses at his words and works, and who insist on their own independence. That's bad news, my friends. That's horrible news. Absolutely horrible. And if you're outside of Christ, it is just wretchedly horrible news. But now for the good news. Verses 10 through 12. God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he, has he removed our transgressions from us. These verses are f- fulfilled for us in the cross. In God sending his son, they are absolutely fulfilled. And the cross demonstrates two things for us. Right? The cross demonstrates God's holy justice. It reveals and shows humanity, for anybody who's listening, that God is a Just a holy, just God. Paul puts it this way in Romans 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice, he repeats. 
The cross demonstrates the holy justice of God, that God is not simply a God who says nudge, nudge, wink, wink about sin. He is incredibly concerned about sin. The cross also demonstrates God's holy love, his holy justice and his holy love. Paul writes in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? Not when we were reformed sinners who, who saw the light and started to crawl back to God. But while we were still sinners, still defying him, still slighting his majesty, still thumbing our noses at his words, still thumbing our noses at his works, still insisting on our own independence, Christ died for us. Never has anyone so spectacularly glorious, so infinitely perfect, done so incredibly much for so little. So two years after Amy Beale's, uh, two years after her murder, Amy Beale's parents, they traveled back to South Africa um, to meet with the families of the four people who were being sentenced for her murder, to meet with their families to actually console them. Not to be consoled by them because they murdered our daughter, but to console them, right? They were being sentenced uh, to 18 years for Amy's murder. And so they were pleading for amnesty uh, before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And so uh, Amy's parents were there to actually support their plea, their appeal, which they didn't get. They were in prison, but wow. Like, they were able to move beyond their anger, their rage, and unforgiveness in order to actually support the murderers of their daughter. Well, after Amy's father died, uh, sometime later, Amy, Amy's mother went back again to South Africa, this time to meet with one of the uh, murderers in order to specifically and in person offer forgiveness for what he did to her, to her daughter. And not only did she offer him forgiveness, but she actually even offered him a job and a future because her parents had formed the Amy Beale Foundation. And as time was up in prison, he invited this young man to be a part of this foundation. And so he accepted her offer. And, and he became an educator <clears throat> in HIV and AIDS awareness. And so Amy's mother and this young ex-con, they would travel the world together, sharing their story of forgiveness and reconciliation. And that Amy's mother now regarded this young man who had murdered her daughter, regarded him as part of her family now. Part of her family. That's what God has done for us. And not just that, but God is the judge. And God is a sovereign judge. He has just sentenced us to prison 
And then as judge, he turns around and he actually serves our prison sentence for us so that we don't have to serve a day behind bars. And then he welcomes us as his sons and as his daughters. Like how amazing is that? That's why David is so full of praise. That's why we need to be so full of praise. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you, his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Please pray with me. <clears throat> Our heavenly Father, we, we are so thankful that you chose to send your son into this world to die a heinous death, a sinner's death on the cross for us. And um, God, nothing, no one forced your hand. You just sovereignly chose to do this because you love us. You chose to set your love on us. And so we are so grateful for that. And now we get to celebrate through the Lord's Supper this incredible sacrifice, Lord. As we continue before you and as we uh, partake in the Lord's Supper, Lord, would you grow us in our experience of your matchless, dimensionless love for us? Because we only see the tip of the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. And so we ask that you would enlarge our vision and our grasp and our apprehension of your infinite love for us. Impart your grace to us, Lord, as we remember the sacrifice that was made on our behalf, individually on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.